Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my favorite album is Abbey Road. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I think the best album is The Madding Crowd. I'm Katherine Schneeberger-McGuggen, and I think the best album is John Mayer's Continuum. And I'm Holland White, and I think the best album is Portishead's Dummy. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking a risky classroom, a cocktail of blue moon and bourbon. Oh my goodness. What are we doing? Uh, Although I feel good. I feel good that uh, my intro didn't get invalidated. We are technically drinking beer. That's I, that makes me feel happy. So we are joined by two guests, as you heard in our introduction. And so let me introduce all of you to first, Dr. Holland White, who is the Director of English Learner Programming for Valor Collegiate Academies in Nashville, Tennessee. She finished her PhD this past spring, despite having a toddler at home. Uh, welcome, Dr. White. Thank you. Excited to be here. We are also joined by Dr. Katherine schneeberger McGugan, who is the Metro Nashville Public Schools Professional Learning Specialist for the Nonprofit Center for Strategic Leadership. Her work over the last eight years has been focused on professional learning for teachers with more than five years experience. Welcome, Dr. schneeberger McGugan. Thanks so much for having me. Inspired by our two guest hosts here, uh, we are drinking a beer cocktail because you all, your show, uh, School Spirits, the School Spirits podcast, you all drink cocktails. And so this is sort of a blending of our beer and your cocktail. And so, uh, yeah, uh, so we, we, we I, I immediately um, it, I felt like a kinship with both of you like right away uh school spirits so brilliantly named and uh just just like the the concept that you know we need to discuss these things and it needs to be like a casual part of what we're doing if we're just going to the like here's the 45 minutes a week where we plc and we specifically plc this way by doing this outline with these topics you're not really digging into the personal part which is where we grow right when we internalize what we're doing and so when do we get personal? Well, maybe we, 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 we get a drink or two in us and we start actually talking about what we do and how we feel and what's important to us and how we might want to change and what, what's, what are our problems. And so like having seeing, seeing that like we're not crazy, no other people see it this way too was really, you know, even though you have no idea who we are, seeing your podcast made me feel seen. Once I consumed all 15, I said, okay, Mr. Ralph, I'm ready. I feel prepared. Let's ask them if they want to drink and talk about education with us. Now, here we are. And I'm just so happy to have you. We're so happy to be here. Yeah. A long time coming. Really exciting, especially since we haven't recorded episodes in a while. I know. We have to get back on our game. We're using this as the launch of Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2.0. <laughs> uh, and so let's, uh, let's play the game. So what are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? This month is a collaborative episode with the hosts of the School Spirits podcast. We read a study of pigeon working memory that indicates complex visuals activate substantially more of our brains than simple ones, which can help with memory and processing of information. Later, we discuss new data that shows how common caregiving responsibilities are among school students. 
The findings prompt us to think about how schools can be places that support and embrace students as caregivers. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read, Working Memory Performance is Tied to Stimulus Complexity. This was written by Roland Push, Julian Packheiser, Amir Hossein, Azizi, Jili Semi Shavinjik, Jonas Rose, Sen Chang, Mike Stutchen, and Anush Gunterkun. Uh, this paper was published in Nature's Communications Biology, uh, and it was published in 2023. This paper investigates the relationship between visual information and working memory performance, as well as the neural correlates that underlie this relationship. The study was conducted using homing pigeons and single-unit recordings, and the findings suggest high stimulus complexity positively affects performance compared to low stimulus complexity. I, I really struggled with what to cue up for our shared episode. I was so excited to read this paper when I became aware of it, like immediately, because it leans into some of the biology and neuroscience stuff that he and I like bonded over fairly early on in our in our professional relationship, but has what I think are very clear applications to to education. And so I don't know how either of you felt about opening up our show notes and being like, what did he ask me to read? But I was very excited to read this paper. Would love to learn from you both. (laughs) Well, my first, honestly, my first reaction was for the first time, I wish that we weren't doing a cocktail because most of these authors come from Germany. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many good German beers. This would have been the perfect opportunity to have a German beer. But this was a great cocktail. So that was my, that was my very initial impression. Because on School Spirits, we do like a little yeah, bit of yeah. a dive into the authors and like what their research interests are, where they come from. And so I was looking into that a little bit and I was like, Germany, Germany, Germany. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh, I actually thought about that specifically, your show and how you do a little biography of the authors. And I'm like, I obsess over trying to pronounce their names, but I do not do anything about background. But Uh, For one of these authors, apparently he's like a pigeon guru and he knows all these things about pigeons. No, this, I mean, these authors, I was, so I did the like research into who they were before I read the paper. Um, And so it was funny because as I'm like putting together all of their like research interests, I'm like, what is this paper going to be about? Because one of them is like spatial communications. Like he researches like hugging and I was like, what is happening here? Like, what is this paper? And then as I was reading the paper, I was like, oh, this was what this guy contributed. This is what this guy. So it like all came together in this beautiful sort of like analysis using pigeons about working memory um, that really stuck with me. So I, I enjoyed that little aspect of it for sure. And I will say I was fired up. So like the bio, I used I used to be a better biologist than I am now, but the the reasons that we choose model organisms is very interesting to me because I studied a very weird organism like when I was doing biology research. And so the fact that they just included a little bit of a justification for why pigeons are model organisms, because I did not know that coming. I had never heard of pigeons being a model organism, but their explanation that pigeons are an excellent model organism specifically for stimulus complexity because of their excellent color vision and their very strong like memory and categorization processes on par with monkeys, which I didn't. And so I was like, yeah, let's use pigeons to study this. That makes a ton of sense. And so that was really, uh, I got to learn about a new model organism today.
Well, and like their intelligence came out in the way that the experiments were designed because they did like the whole first one. And then they're like, but then they're too smart. So we have to make sure we, that we have another experiment yeah. so that we don't have spatial like awareness as part of this potential causation. So they had to like keep running different experiments to outsmart these the pigeons because they were like, they have too many smarts. We don't know which one, which one is accounting for what our actual results are until the very end when they did it all. So I loved that you chose this because this really took me out of my comfort zone. I'm a qualitative researcher. And so I, and I don't, I've never studied animals outside Mm -hmm. of teachers. And so, (laughs) so I was like, I was like, all right, we're just really jumping in with both feet here. Let's see what I can get out of this paper. Um, So basically there, there's like some literature that shows that the stimulus material impacts working memory performance. So like they had read things that said essentially like recall of colored images is faster and more successful than black and white. And so they were like, well, can we prove with pigeons that this is true to some degree? Um, So they ran a bunch of experiments where they essentially showed pigeons like like things with gray and then things with color. And they had them like touch targets and they would like reward them and like punish them. And they tried it three different times. Um, And essentially they found across all three times that complex and simple stimuli can be discriminated equally well if no working memory component um, was present. But if working memory was present, so if they had to like recall it, um, there was higher performance with high contrast. So like more color, more stuff like that, they did better, which I think aligns with the prior research that they read and also like what a lot of teachers who color coordinate a lot of things also know. <laughs> um, and um, they also found that complex stimuli can be ma- maintained more accurately over time. Um, I actually am going to like consult with you guys though, because there was a fourth thing. So this was amazing to me, but the pigeons have a part in their brain that essentially is like the same thing as a prefrontal cortex. So if yeah. they like if they look into that, then they learn about humans' prefrontal cortex, which like blew my mind. Um, and they did something with that that was way over my head. So I was going to ask you guys if you understood that part. And so one of the things that I that I liked thinking about in that sec in this last section, where they basically measured individual neuron activity, said this this neuron in this part of the brain that is active in recall and is active in processing and is active in decision making. How does that neuron respond to decision making as the pigeons are trying to retrieve and use this kind of information? And one of the things that I got really excited about, because I think that it transfers to an educational context, is they saw a lot more of the brain activate in more multi-layered and complex ways when the pigeons were trying to retrieve some of these more complex stimuli, which is the idea of there are there are different colors, there's different patterns, there's different shapes, as opposed to just varying like the brightness of a grayscale. And so we have been, we have discussed on some very old episodes. Let's talk about some deep cut references here, but on some very old episodes, looking at FRMI, looking at FMRI data from students as they're trying to retrieve information that was learned in different contexts. And they saw that it was lighting up different parts of their brain and thinking about 
recruiting and activating more neural pathways gives us more opportunities to retrieve things when we try to activate that schema again. And I think this is evidence that complexity of of stimulus, complexity of the material that we're providing to students in the early on actually improves their ability to recruit new neurons and retrieve that information after the fact. So if I show them an overly simplified black and white representation of a diagram, and then we try to do retrieval practice tomorrow, they have fewer opportunities to light up a piece of that schema and get that information back out, even in some incomplete form, compared to if they've got a more a richer diagram or a richer model that they engaged with previously, even if they don't have robust understanding of that entire model initially, when they're trying to do retrieval practice after the fact, or even recall it later in a discussion, they've got more opportunities to recruit neurons and get some of that information back into their working memory compared to overly simplified models we might have given them, like as sort of a, if we're trying to scaffold something, I can imagine arguments to um, provide finer grains of scaffolding. And I feel like this research shows that if you want to give them more opportunities to capture information early on, you actually want to give them richer experiences that gives them a greater ability to pull that information back into working memory later. Yeah, it made me really think about like the role that technology can play mm-hmm. with when considering the results of something like this, because I know in the math ed field, um, especially during COVID programs like Desmos and stuff like really came popular, but then as they ha- as teachers have gone back into the classroom, like they've really wanted to have a more, like a less technology based relationship with their students. So they kind of moved away from it. And it's like, well, where can, where can we kind of find a happy medium? And then also how can we help teachers and support teachers to use technology to give students like really rich representations um, that will then help them, especially because like Desmos calculators are allowed on the SATs now. Really? I'm pretty sure in in Tennessee at least. Um, And so. Like how do we harness it in a way that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To, to answer the question. No. I don't know how they got individual neuron data, uh, but I am excited that that uh, they they did because I just thought it was neat to read about all those steps of pitch and brain surgery, right? I just thought that was cool, um, the, and uh, I thought about how how those pigeons must be really cared for because once you go through the work of that, you wanna you wanna take care of that animal. That's that's a that's a major investment. Um, so I thought about the little pigeons. Um, uh, so when I when I'm thinking about this, right, there's it, it re uh, reconfirms a lot of things that uh, Dr. Ralph was saying um, that the more places you can get information hooked onto in your brain, the more opportunities you have to pull it out later. And so you know, filling your classroom with um, multiple representations of the information, um, visual representations of the information. Uh, models of like physical three-dimensional models of the information to give students multiple ways to access the information so that they can store it in all of those places in their head. All of those complex representations gives us more opportunities to pull that information out later. Um, and so I'm actually on that note, I could, this could have been my personal improvement note of this, of this episode, but I have a personal goal to spend a lot of time this Michael in Michael's this December and create a, a whole bunch of um, atomic and molecular models because I have, like you were talking about being critical. I am so critical of so many atomic models that I have just rejected to use them out of like 
distaste for them. And so it's time to put my money where my mouth is. And if I think the models need to be better, then I need to go make better models. So it's going to be a crafty December for me so that I can give those kids those more complicated experiences with the material. I was just reading the book, The Immense World by Ed Young. Have you guys read that book? I'm not, but I know Ed Young. So that's, that's the best I got. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautifully written, but it essentially is about like animal senses and, and like which animals have heightened senses and why, and which have like what senses in certain animals are like lower. And he, I mean, it goes from like elephants to insects, to birds, to, to like humans um and the idea being just like everybody has the senses that they need to like do what they need to do in the world um is the gist of it but he goes into like a much more beautiful explanation of it but this reminds me too and like you talking about the models of like this is all visual stimuli really that they did here with the incorporation of like the reward probability system in the last one but like having tactile stimuli as well like is another thing that can help a lot of students that have a lot of um, like auditory and sensory like stimuli mm -hmm. can really, really, really help boost their working memory in the future. And thinking of ways to do that is powerful. That's a, so I like, that was where, what I was thinking about as you were talking is like, when like coming from, you know, working with multilingual learners and looking at like, these are the accommodations that we're offering kids with disabilities mm -hmm. or language learners, things like that. It's always like, an accommodation is visual, like extra visuals or, you know, models or, which is crazy to me that that's like an accommodation and that we wouldn't already be serving all mm -hmm. of our students in this way by using these things that like we know through research mm -hmm. helps you learn. Like it's, it's weird that that has become like, here's a strategy or an accommodation for these students that like aren't accessing it. Like, why aren't we just offering that you know, to all of our students and so that they are also like building those same kinds of neural pathways and connections. Yeah. Do you know, that's one of the things that I did while I, I sent a lot of emails while I was reading this, this, this morning, uh, one of which was to some of my, some of my friends who are scholars in the UDL literature, because I so much agree with you. And I saw some of the same applications where I'm like, this study is actually excellent supporting evidence for integrating UDL line practices in classrooms and some of the benefits that it can have for all students, students who have identified disabilities and students who don't. And so that, so I was like very much on that same, same train with you. And one other thing that I noticed or that I thought I, I noticed in their findings is we're talking a lot about the difference in, in brain performance when working memory is involved. And so in their experiment, they operationalize that as adding a delay between doing their learning experience and then having their offering their behavioral choice moment. And when they didn't have the delay, which was their like early, their early proof of concept study, when there was no delay, the stimuli performed the same. And I thought that the, I made the note towards the end of reading this that also prompted me to think about what is our goal in the classroom? Because for me, very often, I've had several conversations with folks even this past month about my goal is not that they remember one thing, like anything. My goal is never that they accurately or faithfully remember that thing with high, with high fidelity, but that my goal is that they are robustly processing and able to synthesize and reapply and transfer. And so it was a good reminder that sometimes I could imagine, well, we're going to do this like really complicated model. And then they try to remember it and it doesn't, doesn't work out very well. Well, I'll just test them like right after, like I'll show them the model and then I'll ask them about it immediately. 
or I'll simplify the model so that they then can just make this decision very quickly. And that does sort of reduce the problem space. But the goal is not actually retrieval. The goal is processing. And so some of the brain uh, observations I thought was a good reminder of it does uh, help them retrieve some more information. But some of that, it's a very fun word, multiplexing. Like that's that's a neat, That's a, I feel like a very fancy boy when I say, when I say multiplexing. But like the idea of recruiting and activating more neurons is not necessarily so that they recall any individual piece of information, but so that they recruit more of their brain to be processing it because the processing is the point. It's the retrieval is not actually the point for me. The point is to get that information distributed across more of their thinking pathways so that they have access to it later, but also so that it, more of it is in there, more of it can be like spontaneously connected to more information. And so I don't think that the forgetting itself is the problem. I think it's that you have more pieces that can be recruited as forgetting is going on, which synthesizes and promotes creativity in addition to retrieval. Uh, similarly, I was thinking about it and I talked to my kids about the difference between recognition and like, under, like understanding so much that you, you, you can recreate that information because of you understand how the connections are, like knowing it to the point where you can recreate it when you need it. Um, and so sometimes like I have now started in the, like we'll start a unit with this multiple choice pretest, which I, I don't use as an assessment. It's really just a priming activity. And then about 70% through the unit, I will give them that pretest back to them and ask them to correct it. And so I'm like, Oh, I could ACE this now, but my test isn't, isn't the multiple choice test. There's going to be essays that they're going to write in another 30% of the unit. And that's what I'm going to assess. And that's because we're going for the difference between recognizing valuable information and knowing and using valuable information. And those two things are different. And so the pigeons are recognizing valuable information. And so that's really kind of the boundaries of this is that we know that if we're going to give them, like we can give them information. And we know that there are students who are really good at multiple choice test taking because they can recognize the valuable way things are working and this functioning, they are like swimming in this area. But I think that for most of us in education, though our systems might encourage us to go that way because we got so much pressure and we got to make data and we got to have numbers that like, that's not really any of our personal goals. Like we don't, that's not, that's not why we're in it. That's not what we want. And so remembering that, that this is talking about a function of education and that we have to go beyond that function when we're making decisions about what we're doing with our kids in our classroom. Um, so the one thing that we do on our podcast is we pull out a standout quote from each article. Uh, so I did that for this one. <laughs> Would you guys like to hear what I pulled? Badly, desperately. <laughs> Um, so it actually aligns with what Dr. Ralph said at the very beginning of this discussion, but the quote that I pulled is from page 11, um, and it reads, the idea that stimulus features impact working memory performance is rather recent. Results that some hues are memorized more precisely than others, or that cardinal directions are easier to memorize than other orientations can probably be explained by categorization that could depend on stimulus statistics. Hmm. So I just thought that was like kind of a really beautiful way to describe the impact of this paper um, and kind of food for thought as teachers think about how they think about stimulus. Mm. 
my I now have further tasks to do on myself. Um, I use color coding in my classroom, but I have not done the work to understand which colors are more remembered by humans than others. And so I should know that. Well, and I know like there's a lot of like a pretty high percentage of males and boys that are at least blue, green, colorblind. Red, and green, red, green, red, green, colorblind. Yeah. yeah. yeah My yeah. brother's one of them. And it, I mean, like it shows like <laughs> I, that, that kid could not see red or green. It's pretty wild. Um, and so thinking through like things like that, because that's not a small percentage of people. Yeah. I actually, cause I don't think I, Mr. Woodruff, as you're going this direction, uh, the way that I understood the literature that they're citing, it's not that their specific work was about how people remember colors. And there are some colors that people remember with greater precision. So like I showed them this specific hue and their memory, they like, they actually remembered it as this blue rather than that blue, which is not necessarily the same thing as memorability, like broadly, like, like net memorability. And I think to, I'm really glad you brought up accessibility of colors. And so I'm going to reference a, a tool that I have used that I love and I recommend you use it also called coloring for colorblindness. And what it does is it takes any individual color you enter, like you can put in the hex code for your specific color, and it will show you what that color looks like across the four, um, the four like manifestations of colorblindness. So you can ensure that your color is just like, especially if you're color coding, you can put in all three of the colors and it will build you a color palette and how those colors are viewed across all of those physical experiences. So you can ensure that it is discriminatable for anybody, regardless of how they how they perceive or don't perceive ind individual colors, and I found that to be really useful in increasing the accessibility of my of my um, my presentations when I get to choose color palettes. And so that'll be in the show notes, coloring for colorblindness. And so I think the ability to make uh, color coding schemes accessible is probably more important than ensuring that they remember the specific kind of purple that you used. Um, so plus one to thinking about um, different people with different uh, degrees of colorblindness. Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read middle and high school students who take care of siblings, parents, and grandparents, associations with school engagement, belonging, and well-being. This was written by Emma Armstrong Carter, Steve Osborne, Olivia Smith, Connie Siskowski, and Elizabeth Olson. It was published in AERA Open, and this was also published in 2023. So this paper explores the experiences of caregiving students in the United States and how their provision of family caregiving relates to their school engagement, belonging, and well-being. The survey finds the survey findings revealed that some caregiving students reported differing levels of school engagement, belonging, and well-being compared to their non-caregiving peers. This feels right at home with the uh, the uh, school spirits uh, uh, pantheon of papers. I'm so happy we're showing our bias in all yeah. of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I enjoyed it and thought it was really interesting, particularly that it's like, we know that caregiving can affect kids, mm -hmm. but we don't know any data, particularly in the United States, about who's doing that caring, how does it affect their schooling experiences. I thought it was so interesting that they mentioned that other countries track this data, right? I mean, English-speaking countries, like they mentioned the UK and Canada, but the United States 
doesn't do that at all. I'm sure it has to do with like our decentralized school system in the United States. Like it's just difficult to track so many things. Mm -hmm. Um, But this in particular is something that like nobody's put in a survey. Like Mm -hmm. it, it crazy to me that this paper is published in 2023 and they're like, we created a survey where we asked one extra question about caregiving. And this is like, and it, and it, like, it is groundbreaking in this way, right? Because we know that these things are like have a lot of impact, but just that this is the first space where this is actually happening. Why did this take so long? What is there to do about it now that we have this data? Like, I think this speaks to the experience of teachers and students really, really well, but it's another one of those research things, which I feel like was the impetus of us starting school spirits of like, okay, teachers know this, but they're like, it needs to be in a research paper. It needs to have actual data for anybody to do anything about it. And this is a great example of that. Because I think what's great about this paper, so because it was done in a research practice partnership, right? Mm -hmm. Like the lead author is like somebody who's studying this. She's a researcher. But then the next two authors are just people from the Rhode Island Department of Education Mm -hmm. um, because they are like the people that are, you know, that have access to the funds for Rhode Island because this whole study is just done in Rhode Island, um, that they are the ones that can actually take action. So Like at the end, they talk about how now, because of the survey and the data that they got, Rhode Island is planning to offer regulations and supports for students who are are caregiving, which I think is like, wow, the best Mm -hmm. possible outcome for a research paper, right? You just don't see like entire, I mean, Rhode Island is tiny to be fair, but like this entire state, I mean, they have a lot of students. It shows that they have a lot of students, a diverse population of Mm -hmm. students. But the, the, because of this research that happened, the state is taking it upon themselves to think mm-hmm. through what do we do next? How do we support these students? How are we offering flexibility in classes and credit? Um, yeah. So like I do have a few like qualms with the kinds of things that they're saying, like this is going to help for belonging. But but I it's, it's hard because it's like yeah. the, this response is like we can offer flexibility of classes, credit for it. But it's also like flexibility like being able to take night classes or taking courses, other spaces still doesn't really offer belonging, right? Like you're mm-hmm. still othered in, in a space. I don't, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I'm going to, to say that uh, potentially if there is an acknowledged space in the school, these are supports we give for people who are caring for family members. And these are, we are acknowledging that some of our students are doing this and these students are getting these supports and these students are taking these classes and these students are experiencing these additional opportunities or alternate opportunities. Um, When students are part of a program, they do can develop a kinship with other people that are in that program. That can be part of their identity. So if there is like, we're in the after school program for students who have, who are caregivers, well then you, okay, we are receiving these supports together because we have a common ground, common experience. So it's, it's not necessarily that, you know, we help this one student with their one thing, but if we create a space that acknowledge that there is this common human experience that 25 to 30% of our kids are all experiencing. And it's, you are not alone that you have a family member that you're taking care of. You are not alone that you are an obligatory babysitter for your other siblings. This is a normal thing that happens to humans and our school acknowledges it. And you get to connect and meet other students that are experiencing the same thing. I think that can directly, directly provide opportunities to belong in a school. 
And elaborating on that, because I because I was resonating with both of you, and I was resonating with your comments earlier on about flexibility not necessarily affording opportunities for belonging. And I think that that's true, and especially the examples that you shared about, well, you can come in and you can take a night class. That is a separation so that you can participate, but outside of our generally socially understood parameters for when school, with the air quotes, school happens. I think that is distinct from an opportunity to create a school environment as what you were describing, Lawrence, where you are recognized and seen. They referenced a lot of times in the paper, this sort of invisibility, uh, this sort of this, um, it's marginalization, like enacted in practicality. It's a marginalization that we don't talk about the fact that you are caregiving. We don't talk about the fact like, yes, you got to care for your sibling and that's your business. And so come back when you're done. We're not really, we don't have a role in that. You don't have a place to do that here. And I think embracing that in the school environment is really was the heart of the recommendations that I understood in this paper. And I think it is something that we can do better as a school where it's not just that it is recognized and acknowledged, but it is embraced. And some of their findings where there were students who had caregiving roles that were associated with positive changes in sense of belonging or or reductions in some of the negative outcomes. I think those are a representation of how caregiving can be a community supportive activity. And so I think it's not just about making accommodations so they can come back to school when they have discarded that caregiver identity, but about embracing that caregiving is a communal act. And it's something that you do here, and it's something that we do, that we help you do, that you can do in this classroom. And I think it has very pragmatic implications. I think that being able to have a place in the school where I can come, and I can bring my sibling, and we can be here after school, and it's something where we can do school, and we can share caregiving, and we can talk about what we need and we can meet our mutual needs and we can do all those things as a member, as I enact my participation in this social network. And I think that reinforces this sense of I belong here because this is a significant piece of who I am. And that piece is here. Like I can do that. I can participate in that role here. And I think that it's absolutely true that not nearly enough schools provide that opportunity. I'm not familiar with Rhode Island, but I know that in my systems very often, the, the flexibility that you referenced, Holland, early on, that flexibility is about doing caregiving somewhere else. So you can kind of be at school here some other time. And I think that the supports I understood them calling for was about being able to do that here. Be a caregiver while you are a school member. And I think that that's something that I would love to see more of. Yeah, because they're they're feeling they're probably feeling a tension that I can't meet my school obligations because I'm a caregiver. Like it, it feels exclusionary. But if the school was saying you are a caregiver and that is valuable and important, and we see that and we value that for you, so we want to help you be a caregiver and a student. We want you to to help to help you be a caregiver and a student. That is a different flavor. Yeah, I mean, I do have some concerns because I feel like there's been data that women feel this way in the workplace for decades. And, and here's, the thing. <laughs> here's the thing about this study, Catherine. It shows that girls are more likely to be offering what? this kind of care. That's a shock to me. And that they are the ones that report significantly lower levels of school engagement mm. when they are the ones that they're caregivers. So it just, Wild. I think, yeah, that was not a surprise to me. And, and it led me... I, I was really thinking a lot about like what they found for boys and that like boys didn't feel the same way and like thinking through like how to unpack what that really means. Mm -hmm. So actually my standout quote 
because I'm just interested in like what this could mean was about what they said about boys being caregivers. So can I share it with you? Okay. It says, specifically, caring for a sibling, parent, or grandparent could help boys practice self-regulating, communicating, reflecting on their values, and investing in interpersonal relationships, all of which could increase feelings of mutual support and help them maintain positive school engagement and belonging despite the challenges. So it's like, for boys, caregiving is this like socio-emotional, like positive experience. For girls, it's not. Like what like, I don't know, like what's it's the... another chore. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of what the, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not speaking for girls, but that's kind of the, between the line reading of this. Mm-hmm. It's like for boys, for boys it helps them grow. And for girls, it takes away from their experiences. Yeah, like school. they're not. One of the things that was a finding that they referenced in their discussion that I, I referenced specifically trying to unpack the same thing uh, was how, very often boys did not feel that it was something they had to do always. So they did uh, in when the occasion called for it, or there was some sort of family situation. They're like this month, I've got to be focused on taking care of this need, but it won't be something that's true for my role in perpetuity. And girls did not feel that way because of some of the gender norms about how many families expect girls to contribute to these nurturing roles that they don't assume or they don't impose upon boys. And I think that might be a piece of this, of understanding the difference in the implications. And I think actually reinforces the author's recommendations for school-based supports is if more often when girls are assuming a caregiving role with families, that it's something they, they don't always have to do, whereas the, or they're not always having it imposed upon them by their families or by the social structures within which they operate. So something they can do now and then they can know next month I can focus on my studies or I can go play a sport or I can go do extracurriculars and go hang out with my family. Like this is not something that will always fall to me necessarily. Whereas boys very often were saying this is something I'm doing right now, but like next month it probably won't be that way. Well, I was thinking about the sadness factor, right? Like that was the thing that like, have you experienced sadness over this amount of time? And it's like, I wonder how much for the girls, it's this internalized sense of like, this is my life forever, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's just starting sooner than it is for other girls, but like, this is it. This is the entirety of my life. I am a caregiver. Like uh, a resignation to something that they necessarily feel they have the choice to commit to. No, but I, and I don't have a choice to get out of it. Like I also go to school and do the things that I'm supposed to do in school, but like ultimately those things are at school and my life is here being a caregiver. Yeah. And that well, and I it. think that this article it runs in parallel of like a lot of the research. I think that we've even talked about in some episodes around like the differences between boys and girls in STEM and mm-hmm. how girls disengage very early on because they don't see it as like a long-term this is not something Purpose I can do with my life. Yeah, exactly. This is not a possibility. Um, and so it makes me wonder like how much of these feelings that were brought up in this article contribute to that disengagement in some fields that is still a problem. And I mean, and then they become people and women in STEM and have kids and they're forced out of it, but that's yeah. a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just eventually catch, catches Just, up you know, with you at some point. If it's you fine. can break through the caregiver issue in school, <laughs> just wait till you're a working mom. <laughs> <laughs> There's no answer. In my role as an avid teacher, I get the same kids for four years and, uh, um, and I get to know them really well. 
And I have, I know that there are kids in that program who are primary caregivers at home, or at least contributing caregivers to their family. Uh, and I have read this paper today and realized that there are more of them than I know. That like, even in this program where I have 18 students that I know, there are more caregivers in that room than I am keeping track of. And so there's direct practicality, like check yourself. Like that's gonna be true in my college biology classes too. And uh, that where I don't know any of them are caregivers. Um, there will be caregivers in that class. What I hear you raising is like a, a interesting like thought experiment of not even asking the question, but how would your, what, what would your teaching practice look like if you assumed that a third of your students, students were caregivers, were caregivers mm -hmm. yep. and you just operated as if that was the norm? Like, would you, would you operate the same? Would you change your practice? What would that look like? Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm always thinking about homework. <laughs> yeah. I love oh. you homework. I love how much you hate homework. I mean, I I wouldn't give homework if 0% of my kids were caregivers, but if I assume that a third was, you can for sure guarantee that I would not give homework. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's, we all, we all emoted to that comment, but like, I, I really, I really resonate with the assume a third of your students. Like we assume it's rare. Like I assumed it was rare. I think a lot of teachers assume it's rare. Like, yeah, some students are caregivers, but when we say some, we mean like one or two. And that's not even close. That's not even close. Because even the authors in this paper unpack the fact that their estimate of one in three is itself probably low. The number is, that's a lower bound of a third. And so I think the reality of really committing to and leaning into one third of the kids in this room right now have caregiving responsibilities. And so that is something that needs to materially impact what I ask of them, homework and otherwise. It would change my practice. Like it would change the things that I have done. Or yeah, or the ways that you like reflect on your students and the, the things that like, you're like, well, I don't understand why you acted in this way, or, mm -hmm. you know, or the way that you advocate to school leadership, I yeah. think would be yes. a big one. It makes me think of the Jessica Calarco article back in 2020 that she wrote. I think it was called, um, other states have, or other countries have safe safety nets. U S yes. has women. Yeah. And it feels yes. like this yes. is like other countries have safety nets. The U S school system has children, has children. And so what, <laughs> oh, man. what safety nets <laughs> can schools, yeah provide so that we have safety nets and we're not relying on, on children. Child and I think yes. some of that is classroom structures that teachers have control of. Some of it is interactions that teachers have with their students. And some of it is advocacy at the school level. Yeah. And I think that's what this article yeah. is ultimately speaking to um, that has resonated with all of us. But it, yeah. it makes you kind of like sit back and think about like your specific context and what that might look like. This is better with all of you. How was the drink? Ooh, do we get to talk about how it tastes now? Okay, I finished it and I'm trying to remember. Um, honestly, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, thank you. This is the fourth iteration of my testing. The one, the one on the website was absolute total garbage. 
And so this is the fourth version of this beer. And I love, I actually don't care what Ralph thinks, which is why I just stopped and started talking directly in terms of your response. But the fact that you guys liked it was 100% my goal. And I am so happy that it worked out that way. <laughs> now, I will say, if any of our listeners are listening, it tastes more like a beer than a cocktail. It did to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It so, does. like, expect a, expect a flavored beer. Don't expect a cocktail. Thank you to Catherine and Holland for being on here. It was super fun to chat with you about these couple of papers and uh, just get better at the profession together. For our listeners who've enjoyed what you do and want to consume more of the work that you do, where can they find your material? They can find School Spirits, the podcast, on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Yeah, you can. We still have our website. We have an Instagram. Um, we are hopefully returning to the podcasting world soon. Yeah, stay tuned for things on the horizon. But, you know, you can always listen to our back go, catalog. Go into the archives. Yeah. There's some real gems in there. <laughs> <laughs> and real drinks in there. And real drinks. Fantastic. And to everybody else out there, thanks for joining us for yet another month. Good luck as the year winds down and we get close to New Year's. Remember, this is better together. So let us know what you want us to read or what you think of the discussions we've had on twopintplc.com. And we will see you next time. As we pursue growth, discuss research, struggle well, and listen to teachers. teachers.